Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now, here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We are now at the end of our second season and looking forward to our third season, but still just as excited as ever to continue to help you explore and understand that unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. Here we look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here are issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung and heart issues, and more. So listen in today as we interview experts for today's show, the last in our series in September, on environmental justice and social equity. And today, specifically, we're going to talk about the environmental burden on our children, the most often forgotten vulnerable population among us. The environmental justice, or environmental injustice, as I like to call it, is the inequitable and disproportionately heavy exposure of poor, minority, and disenfranchised populations to toxic chemicals and other environmental hazards. Environmental injustice contributes to disparities in health status across populations of different race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status. Infants and children, though, because of their unique biological vulnerabilities and their age-related patterns of exposure, are especially vulnerable to the health impacts of environmental injustices. These impacts are illustrated by sharp disparities across children of different racial and ethnic backgrounds and in the prevalence of some very common diseases caused in part in children by environmental factors. Reducing environmental risk could actually prevent one in four child deaths. In 2012, 1.7 million deaths in children under five were attributable to environmental factors. Environmental risks have an impact, of course, on the health as well as the development of children, all the way from conception through childhood and adolescence and also into adulthood. The environment determines a child's future. Early life exposures impact on adult health as fetal programming and early growth may be altered by environmental risk factors. Adverse environmental conditions are a major contributor to childhood death, illnesses, and disability, particularly in developing countries. Children also are particularly vulnerable to certain environmental risks from all the elements that surround all of us that we all must live in and live among each and every day, as well as emerging threats like e-waste. And this is not limited to low-income and minority children and children in developing countries. All the children of the world are our future. So to care about the environmental burden on them is not an option at all. It is an existential necessity. UNICEF says, Climate change is a direct threat to a child's ability to survive, grow, and thrive. 
As extreme weather events such as cyclones and heat waves increase in frequency and ferocity, they threaten children's lives and destroy infrastructure critical to our children's well-being. From floods to the cleanup to residually induced diseases, children are particularly vulnerable. In fact, UNICEF loves to say this, it's on their website, children are the least responsible for climate change, yet they will bear the greatest burden of its impact. Droughts and changing global rainfall patterns are leading to crop failures and rising food prices, which for the poor mean food insecurity and nutritional deprivations that can have lifelong impacts. These also have the potential to destroy livelihoods, drive migration or lead to those climate refugees we're seeing, as well as conflict, and cripple opportunities for children and young people. Children are the most vulnerable to diseases that will become more widespread as a result of climate change, such as malaria and dengue fever, and some we haven't even discovered yet. Close to 90% of the burden of disease attributable to climate change is borne by children under the age of five. And this is interesting because when this first got on my radar screen about children being so vulnerable, about midway through our first season, the number was 80% of the burden. So it's grown pretty fast. Childhood diseases have substantial impacts on families as well as communities. Several reports published over the past decade, one by the Environmental Protection Agency and another by the World Health Organization, have estimated the cost to individuals and to society due to chronic diseases and developmental disorders in children, and those numbers are huge. This is a lot. So here today to help us unpack some of this is Sean McCabe all the way from Dublin. Sean is a climate policy specialist, and he's with the Children Environmental Rights Initiative, and he is their strategist and advocate. Sean has worked as a policy officer with the Mary Robinson Foundation in climate justice for five years. And during that time, he worked on the foundation's strategy for engagement in the negotiation of the Paris Agreement and the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. He also led the foundation's work on intergenerational equity, incorporating climate justice into the ESG criteria and the provision of renewable energy services through social protection mechanisms. Sean is also engaged in the just transition planning for rural communities in Ireland. And as well, he was with the Environmental Protection Agency in Sierra Leone. And Sean is an expert speaker with UNESCO. Sean holds academic degrees in applied physics and in development practice. And as I mentioned, he is based in Dublin. Welcome, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, indeed, thank you. And before we jump deeper into our discussion, will you tell us briefly, how did the Children's Environmental Rights Initiative get started? And what do you consider their special sauce as it relates to environmental justice and social equity? Sure. The... Um the Children's Environmental uh, Rights Initiative is born out of a lot of the concerns that you've raised there in, in a very well-researched beginning, Bernice, in terms of, you know, one in four children dying before the age of five due to preventable environmental conditions or, or, or the suffering that uh, children who, say, live in energy poverty go through from polluting substances being burned in their homes at a young age or, or if especially... Well, anywhere in the world, um, the way environmental injustice overlaps with 
uh, issues of poverty and inequality and how that sits, uh, the burden of both of those intersections sits so heavily on children. So in 2018, um, the Children's Environmental Rights Initiative, uh, spearheaded by um, the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and the Environment, a, a Canadian man called David Boyd, um, and a coalition of, of the willing, large organizations from around the world who work on issues of children's rights, uh, organizations like the UN Environmental Programme, UNICEF, um, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, um, Save the Children, Plan International and others, all came together to, um, I suppose, create an initiative that would push the issue of children's environmental rights further up the agenda across the world, whether that is at national level where countries are trying to make decisions around environmental issues um, and need a bit of guidance in terms of how to bring children's voices and children's perspectives into that. Um, at the international level, where we're talking about large multinational conventions, you mentioned some of them there, the Paris Agreement, which we've all now got a lot of, um, you know, around the world, we're all committed to hitting targets under the Paris Agreement. But how will that um, benefit or negatively impact on children's rights? These are questions that haven't been discussed, haven't been explored and need to be. So what's the special sauce of the Children's Environmental Rights Initiative? It's basically the ability of, of our coalition to inform governments and inform international processes about the impacts of, 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 of um, the environmental harm on children and how to prevent it. But also, it's about listening to children. We have the ability and we are hosting, we just finished actually in North America, uh, a consultation in Mexico, uh, the US and Canada listening to children's perspectives on environmental issues and their solutions. And it's very important that we don't forget that children have agency, they have the ability to shape the future as well as inherit it. And, you know, we need to look no further than the great children's climate movement that's currently ongoing. We wouldn't have the attention on the climate crisis that we do currently if it hadn't been for the efforts of children all over the world. So it's, it's a mixture of um, building capacity of countries and, and decision makers and others to take positive affirmative action to prevent children from suffering from environmental harm. But it's also about listening to children and understanding what outcomes they want to see and trying to bring those into reality as well. I love that. I love that. What do you do? How does that look when you listen to children? How do we do it? Quite simply, we work through partners. It's very different depending on the country context, depending on the area of the world that we're working in. In the U.S., we had some fantastic partners, the David Suzuki Foundation and IIRC up in, in, in Canada. And we worked with partners in Mexico, partners in the U.S., UNICEF and others to reach as many young people as we could. And, and, and also, it's very important to note that when, when you do reach out to hear from young people, oftentimes, if you're not very intentional about reaching those in the most marginalized situations, you hear from children whose lives are going quite well because they have the luxury to participate in these things. Indeed. So we will go to break, but we have been with Sean McCabe, and he will be with us to continue talking about his organization's special sauce of listening to children as they move forth with their Children's Environmental Rights Initiative. Thank you. We'll be right back. We want to give a shout-out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. 
Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at nhg.com. And our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care. Practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, non-mercury, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lynndentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, to today's show on the environmental burden on our children, the most often forgotten vulnerable population among us. And we are back with Sean McCabe with the Children's Environmental Rights Initiative, where he is strategist and advocate. Again, thank you so much for jumping through some hoops to be with us today, Sean. We really appreciate it. Not at all, Bernice. It's a pleasure to be here. Right before the break, you had intrigued me by telling me about your organization, Special Sauce, which is, I think, listening to children. And you said that you had some sessions in North America and I guess maybe Latin America, whatever. And you mentioned something that happens across almost every subject matter, that you really have to be intentional and proactive reaching out to get all the populations, especially low-income and minority. And again, not just in this arena, but all of those. But what was the most often saw age group that you talked about, and really briefly, were there any issues or what really jumped out at y'all that you kept hearing over and over again? There's a few few places to, to you know, we could, there's so much <laughs> to talk about in terms of that. Let, let me first talk about the intentionality because okay. it is very important. The um, Sustainable Development Goals and, and, and the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, in its preamble, I think the most profound sentence is that we will endeavor, this is the countries of the world committed to endeavouring to reach the furthest behind first in the action they were taking on sustainable development. And and it is an endeavour. You can't just expect people who have other competing priorities or maybe don't have exposure to the information that they need to find their way into these spaces where we discuss these issues. So we have to go out, we have to build capacity, we have to engage people. And, 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 and so, so that was a, a, a large challenge. With, it's a large challenge with all of our consultations. We're running these regional consultations all over the world. So I'm in the middle of planning the sub-Saharan African one at the minute. We finished the North American one in, in July, and we're now planning the, the sub-Saharan African one. Where was that North American one held? Well, we held it virtually. Uh, oh, oh, that's right. We yeah. would have held it. Uh, in, <laughs> we could have met. We would have. We would have held it somewhere. But it had two components. Uh, it had more than two components. But it had a. It had a broad grassroots participative component, which was run out of universities across uh, the three countries: Canada, uh, the U.S., and Mexico. And um, they gathered in opinions and perspectives and 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 and. Um, uh, I, I suppose, uh, attitudes of, of children and young people across those three countries. Um, and then we had an intergenerational workshop session that lasted four days. It had 200 participants, equal participation of young people from the three countries involved, and really inspiring young people. They had the floor, they had, you know, and, and they talked about all issues, intersectionality in the climate movement, 
the issues of policing around climate and what that what will become of it, you know, and questions of how we address marine uh, our relationship with with the sea and 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 how we have uh, equal access to to the various benefits that will come from the action that we're going to take. So it was fascinating. What was fascinating was how the challenges differed across the different countries, driven by legislation or or, or other social issues. I, I was really interested in how aware people were of, of of including minority voices in the conversation. Children and young people are a lot better at that than I think a lot of adults. Um, we we had some wonderful um, uh, people from indigenous communities who who. who represented the incredible challenges that they face in terms of their own um, access to resources and, and protection of, of their own land. So it, it's, it's so such a diverse um, array of concerns and issues. Uh, it would be hard to get into any individual ones here now, but what I would say was the resourcefulness and, 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 and the attitude of solidarity that was shown by the children and young people towards each other and towards devising solutions is very inspiring. And, and the more that we can turn the tables and the more that we can actually put those most affected by environmental degradation and environmental breakdown at the centre of the conversation, the faster we'll move towards solutions. Um, but we also have to recognise, and this is a key point, Bernice, that I like to really stress, is that not everything that's good for the planet is good for people. And so the, the Centre for Business and Human Rights um, has recorded in the last 10 years an enormous spike in human rights allegations against renewable energy companies. So we have also seen in the manufacture, say, of, of, of car batteries, the use of child labour mm. for the electric cars, right? So, so we have to proof our solutions as well as being able to identify the problems. And we, we have to make sure that the solutions don't make things worse for marginalized communities or for children. Indeed. And I think that's unfortunate, especially what you just mentioned with those renewable energy components, because the renewable energy is good. Renewable energy is brilliant. But it is the perpetration of the manufacturers that renewable energy or those renewable energy components who are causing the problems. And in actuality, they would probably be causing problems with some other aspect of manufacturing as well. But the unfortunate part is it casts a dark shadow over the good of renewable energy. And this, I think, is where we come back to looking at the importance of human rights right. in the transition and respecting human rights and protecting human rights, because there's no use in creating the same unequal power dynamics where we have billions of people living in poverty around the world, where we have countries that aren't able to um, provide sufficient energy for the whole of their populations, where we have you know, the extraction of natural resources that are coming to the northern countries from the most impoverished countries in the world, and they're receiving very little or nothing in return. So what we have to do is design solutions that are community-led, that are led by, uh, you know, that put productive assets into the hands of those most vulnerable or those furthest behind so that they can realize their right to development, they can realize their ability to have real opportunity in the world. 
whilst at the same time accelerating the transition. Because if you think about it, if we want to protect, and, and you know, the climate and biodiversity crises, uh, children um, obviously is a lens, but we're all doomed, right, unless we turn the ship around. And so um, there's a great interdependence here. And that interdependence should teach us that unless we make the tools of the transition fairly and equally available to everyone, and unless we ensure that those people most vulnerable aren't further marginalized by the transition, we won't succeed. If we marginalize people, they will resist the change. And we've seen that, like, you know, we we have a perfect example of it, I think, with the vaccine in terms of when you have people who are resistant to a solution, Mm -hmm. you have a very serious issue in terms of, like, in this case, like public health response. Oftentimes, like you said, they're resistant, not because the solution is not good, but because they, as a group, as a people, are always perpetrated upon in other societal or cultural issues. Exactly. And that's precisely it. And so it's, um, you know, why people don't trust in our governments currently and why would they? They haven't been given good reasons, especially people in poor communities and, 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 and people who've been left behind. They haven't been given good reason to trust in their governments. And now this whole transition is predicated upon big levels of trust, and people seeing their lives getting better. Because if that doesn't happen, they won't buy into it. And we need everyone because of that element of interdependence. So children are a very useful place to start in this because we do. I think no matter who we are, we all want to see children protected and looked after. Indeed. And then there's just a very self-interest component of it, too. Life and self-interest. Yes. 40 years from now... I won't be able to do certain things if I'm here at all. (laughs) And we need these children now to complete the transition, carry it out, and take care of us. And people have to realize that, too. Like I said, it's enlightened self-interest. And typically every year we will have a youth panel, and they never cease to amaze. But one of the other things that I've seen from our youth panel that I think you alluded to there, too, is children seem to realize and take on their leadership responsibility with this. And that's a good thing. They're stepping up, in other words. I would be much more confident if the halls of power were full of children in these days than those people who currently occupy them. Because I think children are looking at this crisis. They're paying attention to the science. Anyone who's paying attention to the science realizes it's not 2050, it's not 2040. If we're lucky, it's 2035. And like, we're going to start seeing really, we we are seeing it. We are seeing it, yeah. With the fires, we're seeing them with the the floods, the increased severity of of severe storms. Like, it's, it's, and and even the pandemic, let's be honest, you know, like um, the mono mono agriculture and, and other processes like that are, driving the increased risk of pathogens. So we have uh, we have young people who are looking at the world through clear eyes and they're saying, my future is very much in jeopardy. Exactly. And, and they, want, they want to be heard. They want their solutions brought forward. And unfortunately, and this is just the reality of it, we have political interests that are not 
purely focused on the futures of our children. They're focused on a large variety of special interests and um, other, you know, I would well, say good, trivial the, nonsense in, in, in terms of in planetary scales, right? The good news, though, is I think there are probably more children than them. <laughs> than the political interest in terms of numbers. So as our children begin to speak out, they can become a much more of a driving force. Because I remember last year's guest in Sedu Witherspoon with the Children's Environmental Health Network was telling as we were pondering, well, you know, why are children so often forgotten? And that's because they haven't had a voice typically. And I think they recognize that. But we just have one minute to go before we go to break. And after we come back from break, I want to begin to focus in on the top five environmental issues affecting our children today and how and why these issues impact children so much. So we'll be right back on the other side with Sean McCabe with the Children's Environmental Rights Initiative. He is their strategist and advocate, and he's just making us much smarter, and he's going to continue to do so shortly. Thank you, Sean. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, to today's show on environmental justice and social equity, the last of our series on this theme. And today we're talking about the environmental burden on our children, the most often forgotten vulnerable population. And we are back with Sean McCabe with the Children's Environmental Rights Initiative. And again, he is just really telling us some very interesting but also very exciting information. And so, Sean, we want to just jump in as our time moves away from us and talk about the top five environmental issues affecting our children today and how and why these five issues impact children so much more than, say, adults. And could you explain each issue and then connect the dots for our listeners as to how and why each of these impacts the health of children? It's a pretty big task you've given me, Bernice. Um... I, what I would say is that it's very hard to say the top five based on any, you know, like it yeah. depends on where you live and it depends on what you're facing. Basically, the reason environmental issues are of such importance to children is that they're still growing. Their bodies are forming. They're, what they consume, what they breed, what, what they are surrounded by becomes part of them essentially. And so issues like having uh, severe air pollution which we've seen in numerous parts of the world, or insufficient uh, water supply or, or, or water that is polluted, um, issues of, of uh, hazardous chemical waste, which you know we have we see numerous examples of that in, in, in areas of industrial intensification where waste is not properly dealt with, issues of um, uh, insufficient sanitation and hygiene facilities being around, like uh, really you know something I worked on years ago and, and, and it, it, it stays with me in terms of the secondary environmental effects of these issues is in areas where you don't have sufficient water and sanitation for girls during the menstruation cycle, they will not go to school and they'll start missing out on, on, on weeks of school. This happens regularly in the Horn of Africa and other places. And, and so if you want to see equal outcomes for boys and girls in schools in somewhere like Kenya, you have to make sure that you have adequate water and sanitation facilities at schools, right? So, so these are these are um, issues that you maybe wouldn't otherwise encounter. And then, then there's there's um, you know other other 
specific issues of, uh, I, uh, you know, radiation or d disease vectors or, or um, responses to natural ha hazards and, and, and how after a hazard there, are such, there is such an increase in, in uh, public health risk um, and how you deal with that based on your resilience or your capacity to respond. I think, you know, we're, we're all, we all remember the injustice of, of something like a Hurricane Katrina, which um, impacted different communities in severely different ways and, 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 and left people behind. So if we're seeing more intense storms and more intense um, uh, monsoons and droughts, we know that it will be the poorest communities and within them it will be the children who suffer first and hardest. Um, it's very much place-based. It's very much based on, on where you are and, 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 and where, what your resilience levels are and what you have access to. But put simply, um, the, it is about clean air, clean water, healthy and sufficient food and, and shelter. And if we can get those things right for people, for children, you have a hope of, of seeing in, in their early years, you have a hope of seeing them develop and avoid those tragic outcomes that, that you spoke about at the top of the show. Indeed. And I don't think people realize that probably the two major systems that are most affected by any environmental issue or injustice for children is respiratory system and the immune system, both of which take time to develop and get strong. And I've heard some people who erroneously thought that because children are young and so then they are pristine and they haven't been subjected to all the issues and environmental issues that we have, then that their respiratory and immune systems are better. Not realizing that those systems are not fully developed and so therefore they are vulnerable. It's got, it's got nothing to do with them being clean babies. It's, it's, yeah. They have developing systems and, and you can see like they're growing at such a remarkable rate. And, and so everything that they are inhaling, everything that they are ingesting is fueling that growth. And if that is, if that is polluted, then they will have that in their body for the long term. And, you know, what we've seen in, in you know, areas of, say, like Flint, Michigan, or, or you, look at, you look at issues in terms of, of across where we've got large amounts of zinc mining in Africa and Zimbabwe, where communities are seeing lead flowing through their, 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 their water supply. Like, you don't have a chance. You don't have a chance of surviving. You don't have a chance of avoiding severe mental and physical illness if what you're consuming is heavily polluted. And so this comes back, and, and maybe this is, uh, you know, I think we should always try to focus on the hope because we know, we know that the, the, the impacts are there. But the right to a healthy environment, which is currently, as we speak, being debated in the Human Rights Council in Geneva, and we may see by the end of this month universal recognition of that right for the first time. But... What's very important about a rights lens is that, you know, if we were to succeed in having the, the right to a healthy environment recognized universally, then we have a starting point for the realization of the right to health, the right to water, the right to, um, you know, sanitation, the right to uh, life. You know, these, these things are, are all in, interlinked. But as it currently stands, 
we do not universally recognize the right to a healthy environment. But that is puzzling to me, Sean, because you stand up every person, if you could, across the world. We would all say we want that, and we would all throw some blows to have that. So why is there even a discussion about it being a right? That is just puzzling to me. Well, absolutely. And and it comes back to what we were saying at the end of the last segment, which is, you know, why are we steering the planet towards, you know, we will be the first generation (laughs) since the Middle Ages, as things currently stand, to hand off the planet in a worse state, demonstrably worse state than we inherited it from our ancestors. And that's an incredible, uh, uh, it's such a miscarriage of any concept of justice for future generations. Um, but as you said, they don't have a voice. They don't have a say, and they don't have a vote, and so they get forgotten a bit. There's a tendency, when you talk about the typical vulnerable populations, there's a tendency for people to blot it out, and they go on by, because that's not in my backyard. That doesn't affect me. Because we're all very busy people and trying to clean off our tables and plates as much as we can. But what we are seeing, and I think the world is beginning to see, is that increasingly it is affecting all of us. For example, and it's things all around us. I passed by one of the top private schools in the area kind of on the way home, and I just heard they were rated in the top three in the country or whatever. Well, I hate going that way because I get in a line of cars that's three blocks long. That school and just about every other school at the lower levels, elementary levels, has a horseshoe drive in front of it. And that horseshoe drive is engaging cars, most of which are not electric cars, which means nasty stuff is coming out of the rear of those cars. And because there's so many of them, it's creating its own ecosystem. And that happens in the mornings and it happens in the afternoon. And so children who go to schools that have to pay from twenty dollars to $50,000 a semester in tuition are getting just as polluted from the air around them as are the kids who may live in sub-Saharan Africa. Absolutely. Well, they're very different. Uh, some, some of these <laughs> schools, like if, we look at, if we look at the source activities that cause these things, so whether it's industry or energy, uh, transport, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, there's domestic activities, what we do at home, what, what we use at home. Like, are you splaying glycophosphate to kill weeds in your, in your front yard? That's a big issue if you are. You know, there's, there's waste management and there's the agricultural systems that we rely on. So it, it, it can be a densely uh, crowded uh, school parking lot where there's engines running as, mm-hmm. as parents wait. Or it can be what's being sprayed on your food. Or your grass. Or your grass <laughs> or, you, or your yard. It can, be, mm-hmm. it can be how you're managing waste. It's what's happening with your water supply. Sean, I'm, and I hate to interrupt you, but we're no, going to have to go to break. I have a message here that I am way over time. Okay. <laughs> we're going to go to break, and we'll be right back on the other side with Sean McKay. Thank you, Sean. We want to give a shout-out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods grocers, Natural Grocers, Central Markets, Sunflower Shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, 
offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at NHG.com. And our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care. Practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, non-mercury, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lynndentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. We are back with Sean McCabe with the Children's Environmental Rights Initiative, and he really is making us smarter. And right before the break, we were talking about a lot of the issues about why children are that vulnerable class, why children are part of that forgotten class. And again, we are both applauding the fact that they are speaking out and they recognize that they have to take a leadership role. But, Sean, I now want to turn to climate change and some remedies as well as some policy. So how is climate change intersecting with our children's health? And is there any good to be had out of (laughs) anything that's come out of our increasingly rapid global warming efforts? There's, you know, well, to begin with, how it impacts, in it's a myriad of ways. You know, we already touched on some of them, but we're seeing droughts, we're seeing floods, um, we're seeing, like, you know, the last El Nino cycle saw 60 million people around the dry belt of the world, um, around the Sahel and Honduras and, and over in, in Southeast Asia, pushed to the brink of famine uh, on, on account of, on account of uh, climate. We're seeing, you know, the impacts of severe storms. And then on the mental side of things, we're seeing climate anxiety and other things that have to also factor into our conversations more and more as as young people realize the, the predicament that our generation is leaving them in. Um, in, in terms of, of, of is there any good coming from it, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to say, but, but what, I would, what I would think is that there is, I've been on calls recently with young people from all around the world. You know, um, there's a group that organizes around the UN negotiations on climate called Youngo. And it would be, it's very inspiring to sit on those calls with 100, 150 young people from all across Africa, all across um, uh, the Americas, all across uh, Europe and, and beyond. Like having real conversations about what it takes to turn their government's minds to the challenge of the climate crisis. So if there's a good that's come from it, it has been that sense of global solidarity that is emerging. So where's the intersection with COVID, with children's health, and how has that impacted? You know, COVID and the whole pandemic has had an impact on all of us, all industries across everything, one way or the other. So what has been the impact with children's health as well as children organizing to lead the charge for climate change mitigation? Um, Well, I think in the first instance, it's prevented children from organizing and coming back together. In fact, the first global strike since the pandemic, uh, in-person global strike, will take place this Friday, the 24th. Oh, that maybe isn't suitable for your show, seeing as it doesn't air until... Sorry, apologies if I'm including that incorrectly. Um, But um, so the first global strike took place this previous uh, Friday. Yep. Um, the first time children and young people could meet 
uh, and, and strike since the pandemic. I think there's a real cautionary tale in the pandemic that we need to heed and that young people are aware of, and that's the issue around what's called the TRIPS waiver. I'm not sure it, how, how well known it is in, in the US, but it's a proposal to make the technologies around the manufacture of the vaccine available to everyone. Um, it's a World, World Trade Organization proposal, and it's being resisted by a large number of countries uh, in Europe and the US and elsewhere. And this is an issue because we need everyone to be vaccinated to prevent a variant emerging that is vaccine resistant. It's a very, very good analogy of the climate crisis because we need everyone able to wean themselves off fossil fuels very quickly to prevent us all falling over the edge of the cliff of the climate crisis. Now, the global community is failing in its obligation to provide the vaccine globally. This is, there's massive vaccine inequity, and there's intentional efforts to avoid um, putting in place the measures that would make the vaccine available globally. So that's a real warning sign for me and for the young people who are mobilizing around the climate crisis, because they recognize that that is a betrayal of the type of solidarity necessary to see us through the climate crisis. So the question becomes, will we repeat that same mistake again with the climate crisis? Will, you know, in, in 2010, when the, when the um, uh, just after the first effort at arriving at a Paris Agreement failed in Copenhagen, uh, the Prime Minister of England at the time, Gordon Brown, got up and said, we will, by 2020, mobilize 100 billion every year in order to enable developing countries to adapt and uh, mitigate emissions, et cetera, et cetera. So far, they've mobilized 13 billion in total. Oh, my. Yeah. So it was meant to be 100 billion a year this year, and it's only been 13 billion total. So we are failing horrendously in the global solidarity aspect, and that is where the children are leading the charge in the most profound way. And so we need to listen to them and we need to start freeing up the resources and the capacity building and the support that's necessary to drive us forward. In this. Indeed. Are we seeing any new or emerging environmental issues that are impacting children, perhaps due to climate change? Well, I, think, I think this comes back to what I was saying in the first instance um, around the solutions that we're developing and how we need to make sure that those solutions don't have negative impacts on children and young people. Um, certainly in terms of, um, you know, we've seen it with the mining of coltan, how we're using child labour in that process, and, and, and that has detrimental impacts on children's health. We're seeing how um, in about 2008, 2009, there was a big push to use corn for biofuel in the U.S., which inadvertently caused a spike in the price of corn as a global commodity, because you were essentially taking corn out of the food market. And so that caused spikes in the price of corn in other parts of the world, which would, in the long run, lead to malnutrition. So we have to consider very carefully the unintended consequences of our solutions and make sure that they prevent harm as well as accelerating our tra tra uh, transition to a zero-carbon society. So, Sean, what are some of the effective actions, policies, and behavioral changes that are here or that promise 
to come in the future to make a difference to protect our children from some of these negative environmental issues and impacts? I think in the first instance, we need to, you know, it's some of it's very, very obvious. We just need to stop emitting carbon. We need to remove carbon from, from, from our daily lives. Now, it can often become very individualized, the climate crisis in particular, and people can start feeling a great depth of guilt because it's very hard to get yourself out of carbon-intensive life cycles if the entire world is dependent on carbon-intensive life cycles. You know, if, you, if, if entire supermarkets or towns or cities are built to accommodate cars, it can be very hard to survive without a car. Um, and so what we need to start doing is we need to start supporting uh, really progressive ideas around um, a green transition that protects jobs, that makes sure that we create jobs, that, that, that reaches the furthest behind first, really puts in that safety net that prevents communities that could end up being left behind from being left behind. That means that you have to begin, and this is where we began our conversation, you have to begin with listening to those communities, whether it's children and young people, whether it's uh, minorities, whether it's, it's, it's um, people with disabilities, whoever, whoever is facing um, challenges in our current paradigm, we need to listen to them now so that they don't face even more challenges as we transition. And let me ask you the big question, the big idea. Yes. Why should people who are not in those categories care? I think that's the nut that we have to crack to move us forward at the velocity that we need to move forward. Well, that's exactly it. And this is where we have to actually discover the best nature of ourselves <laughs> because yeah. unless it is a just transition, there won't be a transition. Unless it's fair and equitable, it won't work at the speed that we need it to work at. And everybody so will suffer. And we won't have access to those, to the food that we need, to the water that we need. We won't be able to continue to live the way we currently live unless we help everyone right now to transition. It's a mobilization that hasn't been seen since the Second World War. It's, it's, it's an enormous, enormous challenge in, in front of us. But if we embrace it the right way, we will improve lives for everyone. We'll improve safety for everyone. We'll give everyone a sense of belonging and a sense of purpose because everyone is needed in the transition. So I think that's the one thing that gives me hope in all of this is it's only that by finding out the very best of our natures that we will overcome it. And I think a good place to start with that is listening to children because they aren't so jaded and they have got that sense of camaraderie and solidarity that we don't. And I think people got a little taste of that with the COVID pandemic, as our essential workers were put out of work, as our essential workers essential were no longer available to us, and so we suffered. And so people got a taste of what it looks like to care about and to be affected by the issues and the impacts on the vulnerable class. If we can just, could we take that and bottle it? <laughs> and take it out on a road show so that it will stay with people. This is why you must care. Yeah, absolutely. And they are all inheriting the future that we're leaving them. And if we don't do right by them, it will be a failure for the ages. Indeed. John, this has been such an interesting conversation that, again, has made us smarter and wiser. And so we have been today with John McCabe all the way from Dublin. <laughs> and he's doing a lot of great work with children 
and truly impressed on your listening sessions with children. Again, Sean McKay with the Children's Environmental Rights Initiative. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Bernice, and have a very nice day. Thank you. And thank you, audience, for listening in today to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your homes, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is the result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day, like yourself. And each of those tiny acts can seem insignificant, but they all add up one way or the other to the change that we each live through. This is your host, Bernice Butler. Thank you for listening in today. And join us again next week as we kick off Season 3 of Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. Thank you, audience.